Chapter 8, Part 2 of American Men of Mind by Burton Egbert Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. American Men of Mind by Burton Egbert Stevenson. Chapter 8, Philanthropists and Reformers, Part 2. We have already said that the highest form of philanthropy is not the giving of money, but the giving of self, and we shall close this chapter with a brief consideration of the careers of a few of the many men and women who, in the course of American history, have devoted their lives to the betterment of humanity, either as ministers of the gospel or as laborers for some great reform. Among ministers, no name has been more widely known than that of Beecher, first Lyman Beecher and afterwards his brilliant son, Henry Ward Beecher. Lyman Beecher was born in New Haven, Connecticut, in 1775, the son of a blacksmith, and his youth was spent between blacksmithing and farming. His love of books soon manifested itself, however, and means were found to prepare him for Yale, where he graduated at the age of 22. A further year of study enabled him to enter the ministry. For 16 years, he was pastor of the Congregational Church at Litchfield, Connecticut, and soon took rank as the leading clergyman of his denomination. His eloquence, zeal, and courage won a wide reputation, and in 1832 he was offered the presidency of the newly organized Lane Seminary at Cincinnati. This place he held for twenty years, and his name was continued as president of the seminary catalogue until his death. Soon after he assumed this position, the slavery question began to assume the acute phase which ended in the Civil War. Mr. Beecher was, of course, an abolitionist, and for a time lived in a turmoil, for many of the seminary students were from the South, while Cincinnati itself was so near the borderline that there was a great pro-slavery sentiment there. But during Mr. Beecher's absence, his trustees tried to allay excitement and, in a way, carry water on both shoulders by forbidding all further discussion of slavery in the seminary and succeeded in nearly wrecking the institution for the students withdrew in a body and while a few were persuaded to return the great majority refused to do so and laid the foundation of oberlin college for seventeen years mr beecher labored to restore the seminary's prosperity but finally abandoned the task in despair he resigned the presidency in eighteen fifty two intending to devote his remaining years to the revision and publication of his works but a paralytic stroke put an end to his active career mr beecher's vigor of mind and body were imparted in a remarkable degree to his children of whom he had thirteen of harriet beecher stowe we have already spoken but by far the most famous of them was henry ward beecher born in eighteen thirteen and renouncing an early desire for a seafaring life in favor of the ministry he secured his first charge in eighteen thirty seven and ten years later entered upon the pastorate of plymouth church in brooklyn where his chief fame was won the church one of the largest in the country soon became inadequate to hold the crowds which flocked to hear his brilliant preaching as a lecturer and platform orator, he soon came to be in such demand that he was at last compelled to decline all such engagements. He took an active part in politics, holding that Christianity was not a series of dogmas, but a rule of everyday life, and did not hesitate to attack the abuses of the day from the pulpit. He was as facile with the pen as with the tongue, and his publications were many and important. 
All in all, he was one of the most influential and picturesque figures that has ever occupied an American pulpit. Lyman Beecher was at all times a doughty antagonist, and in 1826 he had been called to Boston to take up the cudgels against the so-called Unitarian movement which had developed there, under the leadership of William Ellery Channing. For six years and a half he wielded the cudgels of controversy, but with no great effect, for Channing was a foeman in every sense his equal. Channing had graduated at Harvard in 1798, a small man of an almost feminine sensibility with a singular capacity for winning devoted attachment from all with whom he came in contact. For two years he served as tutor in a family at Richmond, Virginia, where he acquired an abhorrence of slavery that lasted through life. Upon his return north, he began the study of theology at Cambridge, and in 1803 became pastor of a church in Boston, where he soon attracted attention by sermons of a rare fervor, solemnity, and beauty. He was from the first identified with a movement of thought, which came to be known as Unitarian, and gave to the body so-called consciousness of its position, and a clear statement of its convictions with his sermon delivered at Baltimore in 1819 on the occasion of the ordination of Jared Sparks. For the fifteen years he succeeded, Channing was best known to the public as the leader of the Unitarian movement and the sermons delivered during that period constitute the best body of practical divinity which the movement has produced in later years he was identified with many philanthropical and reform movements and was one of the pillars of the anti-slavery cause though never adopting the extreme opinions of the abolitionists of his rare quality and power as a pulpit orator many traditions remain and his death at the age of sixty-two removed a great power for righteousness even to give a list of the men and women who have sacrificed their lives in the attempt to carry the gospel of christianity to heathen nations is beyond the limits of a book like this but at least mention can be made of two of the earliest adoniram judson and his wife whose experiences form one of the most thrilling chapters in missionary history adoniram judson was born in malden massachusetts in seventeen eighty eight and after graduating at Brown University and taking a special course at Andover Theological Seminary, became deeply interested in foreign missions, and in 1810 determined to go to Burma. Securing the support of the London Missionary Society, he sailed for Asia on the 19th of February, 1812. Two weeks before, he had married Anne Hasseltine, who consented to share his work, and who sailed with him. On that long voyage, they had ample time to discuss and consider the various dogmas of their faith, and they became convinced that the baptism of the New Testament was immersion, and in accordance with this view, both of them were baptized by immersion upon reaching Calcutta. But this change of faith cut them off from the body which had sent them to India, and it was not until 1814 that the Baptists of America took the two missionaries under their care. Meanwhile, Dr. Judson mastered the Burmese language and began his public preaching. Before long, he baptized his first convert and pushed forward the work with renewed zeal, translating the gospel into Burmese, publishing tracts in that language, and undertaking the most perilous journeys. The Burmese government had never been friendly, and, in 1824, seized the missionaries and threw them into prison. They were confined in the death hole, reeking with foul air, without light, and were loaded with fetters. Just enough food was given them to keep them alive, and at last 
stripped almost naked, they were driven like cattle under the burning sun to another prison where it was intended to burn them alive. They were saved by the intercession of Sir Archibald Campbell, but Mrs. Judson's health had been wrecked by the terrible experience. She never recovered, dying two years later. Undaunted by difficulties, Dr. Judson continued his work, completing his translation of the Bible, traveling over India, compiling a Burmese grammar and dictionary, but his labors at last undermined even his constitution and he died at sea in eighteen fifty while on his way to the isle of france turn we now to lucretia mott one of the most extraordinary women who ever lived in america born in nantucket in seventeen ninety three the daughter of a sea captain named thomas coffin she was raised in the strict quaker faith to which her parents belonged she began teaching while still a girl and, at the age of eighteen, married a fellow-teacher, James Mott. It was not long after that that she developed the gift of speaking at the Quaker meetings, simply, earnestly, and eloquently. The Quakers had always opposed slavery, and Lucretia Mott was soon working heart and soul against it. When the American Anti-Slavery Society was organized in 1833, she was one of four women who joined it, and she proceeded immediately to organize a female anti-slavery society, the first organization of women in America working for a political purpose. Years of abuse followed, for in those days anti-slavery lecturers were tarred and feathered, their homes burned, and many other indignities heaped upon them. Throughout all this, Mrs. Mott never lost her serenity and never suffered bodily injury. On one occasion, the annual meeting of the Anti-Slavery Society in New York was broken up by a mob, and some of the speakers were roughly handled. Perceiving that some of the women were badly frightened, Mrs. Mott asked her escort to look after them. "'But who will take care of you?' he asked. "'This man will,' she said, and smilingly laid her hand upon the arm of one of the leaders of the mob he will see me safe through the rioter stared down at her for a moment his conflicting thoughts betraying themselves upon his countenance then his better nature triumphed and he led her respectively to a place of safety she seems to have possessed the power of charming any audience and carried her anti-slavery campaign even into kentucky where she commanded respectful attention she was one of the first to take up the question of woman suffrage and in eighteen forty eight with elizabeth caddy stanton and a few others called the first woman's suffrage convention ever held in this country for fifty years she continued her public work until she grew to be one of the best known and best loved women in the country she lived to see the slave freed and when she died a great concourse followed her body silently to the grave as they stood there with bowed heads a low voice asked will no one say anything who can speak another voice responded the preacher is dead in this day of pitying and enlightened treatment of the insane it is difficult to realize the barbarities which they were called upon to endure a century ago they were regarded almost as wild beasts were kept chained in foul and loathsome places fed with mouldy bread filthy water, and allowed to die the most miserable death. For everyone used to believe that insanity was a mark of God's displeasure, and the outcast from his heart became equally an outcast from the hearts of men. 
the insane were regarded with fear and loathing and it was not until the beginning of the nineteenth century that such men as dr channing began to insist on the presence in human nature even in its most degraded condition of grains of good it was from dr channing that dorothea lynde dix drank in this theory with passionate faith and proceeded at once to convert it into action she was governess of dr channing's children and had long been interested in bettering the condition of convicts but now her attention was turned to the insane and she proceeded at once to master the whole question of insanity its origin its development and its treatment so far as it was then known enlisting the aid of a number of broad-minded men among them charles sumner she went to work in one prison she found two insane women each confined in a small cage of planks others were locked in closets cellars and stalls some of them were naked some were chained some were regularly beaten and scourged with all her data at hand she addressed a memorial to the massachusetts legislature setting forth in page after page the details of these almost incredible horrors which she herself had witnessed it exploded like a bombshell for it was a terrific arraignment of the whole state her statements were denounced as untrue and slanderous but a little investigation proved their truth and with such men behind her as channing horace mann and samuel g howe it was soon apparent that something would be done the obstructions and delays of politicians were swept away before a steadily rising tide of public indignation and a large appropriation was made by the legislature to provide proper quarters and proper treatment for insane persons so miss dix won her first great victory the forerunner of similar ones in almost every state in the union for she traveled from state to state making the same investigations she had in massachusetts arousing public opinion and compelling legislature after legislature to make adequate provision for the insane the vastness of this campaign which miss dix planned deliberately and which she carried through until she had visited every state east of the rocky mountains gives evidence to her extraordinary character during the civil war she was superintendent of hospital nurses having the entire control of their appointment and assignment but the care of the insane was her life work she resumed it at the close of the war and carried it forward until her death we have already referred more than once in the course of these chapters to the anti-slavery agitation which ended in the civil war during the second quarter of the nineteenth century it was the one great political question in america upon which men were compelled to take one side or the other from the first there existed in the north a band of abolitionists of men in other words who believed that the only solution of the slavery question was to put an end to that institution at once and forever of the persecutions which were visited on the abolitionists we have spoken when telling the story of lucretia mott social ostracism was the least of them perhaps no one person in america did more to crystallize public sentiment against slavery than lydia maria child an author at the age of seventeen and writing continuously until her death coming early under the influence of william lloyd garrison that great leader of the abolitionists it was inevitable that she should employ her pen to assist the cause in eighteen thirty three appeared her appeal for that class of americans called africans the first anti-slavery work printed in america in book form antedating mrs stowe's uncle tom's cabin by nineteen years it attracted wide attention enlisting the interest of such men as dr channing who walked from boston to roxbury to thank the author
but it was not without its penalties for society closed its doors to mrs child many of her friends deserted her and she was made the subject of much cruel comment however she became more and more interested in the anti-slavery crusade edited the national anti-slavery standard and wrote pamphlet after pamphlet when john brown was taken prisoner she wrote him a letter of sympathy which drew forth a courteous rebuke from governor wise of virginia and a letter from the wife of senator mason the author of the fugitive slave law threatening her with future damnation these letters were published and had a circulation of three hundred thousand copies wendell phillips paid an eloquent tribute to her character and influence at her funeral she was the kind of woman he said one would choose to represent woman's entrance into broader life modest womanly sincere solid real loyal to be trusted equal to affairs and yet above them a companion with the password of every science and all literature but however valuable the services of women like lucretia mott and lydia maria child and harriet beecher stowe were in the fight against slavery the leader and high priest of the movement was william lloyd garrison born in newburyport massachusetts in eighteen o five his was an unhappy boyhood for his father a sea captain of intemperate and adventurous habits left his family soon after the boy was born and was never seen again the mother a woman of unusual strength of character went to work to earn a living for herself and her son and it was to her careful training that his development was due at fourteen years of age he was apprenticed to a printery and served until he was of age from the first he was remarkable for his firmness of moral principle and for an inflexible adherence to his convictions no matter at what cost to himself he soon showed too that he was destined for something more than a printer a man who puts in print the ideas of others that he had ideas of his own his apprenticeship over he started a paper of his own but it was too reformatory for the taste of the day and proved a failure the most noteworthy thing in connection with it was the publication of some poems which had been sent in anonymously and which garrison recognizing their merit discovered to be the work of john g whittier then entirely unknown he visited the poet encouraged him to keep on writing, and laid the foundation of a friendship which was broken only by death. Going to Boston after the failure of his paper, Garrison for a time edited the National Philanthropist, devoted to prohibition. This paper, too, was a failure, but at Boston Garrison met a man whose influence changed the whole course of his life. His name was Benjamin Bundy. He was a Quaker, and at that time thirty-nine years of age. He was a saddler by trade but for thirteen years had devoted his life to the anti-slavery cause, forming anti-slavery societies and editing a little monthly paper with a portentous name, The Genius of Universal Emancipation. Bundy, whose home was in Baltimore, had journeyed to New England in the hope of interesting the clergy in the cause. In this he was bitterly disappointed, but he mightily stirred the heart of young Garrison, who soon became his ally and afterwards his partner in the conduct of the paper. His vigorous editing of it was soon a national sensation. He had seen with dismay the indifference with which the North regarded the great issue, an indifference grounded on the belief that slavery was entrenched by the Constitution and that all discussion of it was a menace to the Union. He realized that this indifference could be broken only by heroic measures, and he took the ground that since slavery was wrong, every slave had a right to instant freedom, 
and that immediate emancipation was the duty of the master and of the state. Baltimore was at that time one of the centers of the slave trade. There were slave pens on the principal streets, and Garrison soon witnessed scenes which would have touched a less tender heart. In the first issue of his paper, he denounced this traffic as domestic piracy, and named some men engaged in it, among them a vessel owner of his own town of Newburyport. This man immediately had Garrison arrested for gross and malicious libel. He was found guilty, fined fifty dollars and costs, and, as there was no one to pay this, was thrown into prison. Garrison took his imprisonment calmly enough, but his old friend, John G. Whittier, was deeply distressed and appealed to Henry Clay to secure the release of the guiltless prisoner. This Clay would probably have done, but he was anticipated by another friend of Garrison's, Arthur Tappan of New York, who sent the money to pay the fine, and the young agitator was free again, after an imprisonment of forty-nine days. He had not been idle while in prison, but had prepared a series of lectures on slavery, which he proceeded at once to deliver. Then, on the first day of January, 1831, he began in Boston the publication of a weekly paper called The Liberator, which he continued for thirty-five years, until its fight was won and slavery was abolished. How well that fight was waged, history has shown. In his first number, he announced, I will be as harsh as truth and as uncompromising as justice. On this subject, I do not wish to think, to speak, or write with moderation. No, no. Tell the man whose home is on fire to give a moderate alarm. Tell the mother to gradually extricate her babe from the fire into which it has fallen. But urge me not to use moderation in a cause like the present. I am in earnest. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will not retreat a single inch. And I will be heard. And heard he was. The whole land was soon filled with excitement. The apathy of years was broken. From the south came hundreds of letters threatening him with death if he did not desist, and the state of Georgia offered a reward of $5,000 for his apprehension. In the north, anti-slavery societies were formed everywhere, and the movement grew with great rapidity, in spite of powerful efforts to crush it. There were riots everywhere. Garrison was dragged through the streets of Boston with a rope around his body, and his life was saved only by lodging him in jail. Elijah Lovejoy was slain at Alton, Illinois, while defending his press. Marius Robinson, an anti-slavery lecturer, was tarred and feathered in Mahoning County, Ohio. In the cities of the South, mobs broke into the post office and made bonfires of anti-slavery papers and pamphlets found there. Quarrels and dissensions in the anti-slavery ranks developed in time, but when the Civil War was over, the leaders of the Republican Party united with Garrison's friends in raising for him the sum of $30,000, and after his death, the city of Boston raised a statue to his memory. Perhaps no better estimate of him has ever been made than that of John A. Andrew, War Governor of Massachusetts. The generation which preceded ours regarded him only as a wild enthusiast, a fanatic, or a public enemy. The present generation sees in him the bold and honest reformer, the man of original, self-poised, heroic will, inspired by a vision of universal justice, made actual in the practice of nations, who, daring to attack without reserve the worst and most powerful oppression of his country and his time, has outlived the giant wrong he assailed, and has triumphed over the sophistries, 
by which it was maintained. End of chapter 8, part 2. Recording by William Tomko.